You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, Lesson 20. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. What we're looking at today is taking the next step forward. Last semester in Prependel, we did very formal forms of preparing sermons. I mean, the most formal form, where we talked about all those things of a proposition or a main point as a combination of a principle and an application. It was, remember those classic words, a universal truth in a hortatory mode. I know it's just like poetry to you, isn't it? But at the same time, we recognize those big, long statements are boxy, and very few people actually preach that way. I mean, even though you see it in my book and Haddon Robinson's book, you recognize those long statements of principle and application are not kind of ordinary speech. The reason we prepared that way is because of where you are in the curriculum that not having had a lot of exegesis and hermeneutics yet, simply forcing you to look at a passage and say, all right, what's true, and what can I, with the authority of God's word, tell you to do about it? So by forming main points and propositions with principle and application, you're simply forced to think, what's true, and what must you do about it? Well, now you're actually going to start preaching this semester, so we want to take the next step. And that is to say, all right, how do you take these formal forms and reduce them to more common language? And uh, the big picture is going to be we're basically going to chop them in half. And we're going to talk about how we do that, how we take those formal structures and do a fundamental reduction. And what we're going to do this semester is we're going to preach with the formal reductions. Okay, we're going to do the fundamental reductions this semester. You're still going to go through the process of a formal formulation of proposition and main points. In fact, you'll turn that in as part of your assignment, I'll tell you. But when you're actually preaching, we're going to ask you to do the fundamental reduction, to shorten things down where it's more normal in the way that you hear people preaching. So that's the goal for today. If you will, uh, what we're talking about in this first lecture of elementary practicum is more outline forms. So we're taking another step forward in structure. And uh, you'll see that it's the same kind of old friends. We're still going to be talking about principle and application. It'll be the same old friends, but we'll, we'll shorten their clothes, as it were, in putting their new clothes on. In converting traditional structures to short forms, let's first of all just kind of think of where we were before. And let me get the lights down here. When we looked at these formal forms, we said, now here's a principle consistent outline, right? Where the principle is staying consistent. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation. And that's in the proposition, main points. And that means the anchor clause is staying the same, right? In the principle consistent, it's the principle that's staying the same. This one happens to be in consequential form. This is all old familiar stuff. You've even seen this outline. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity. It's principle consistent, so the application clause is what's changing as you go through. Principle is staying the same. Sound familiar? Seen that before? You can even put it on the midterm. 
And we said, if we were looking at application consistent outlines, uh, very similar things. In an application consistent outline, here it's in conditional form, but here the anchor clause is the application. So since Jesus alone provides salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity. Since Jesus alone purchased salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity. Oops. Since Jesus alone possesses salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity. Since Jesus alone bestows salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity. Okay, application consistent. The application is staying the same all the way through. Now, here's what we're going to do this time. As you see those old things. Um, the formal proposition and our main point that you saw the universal truth was in a hortatory mode. The universal truth was based on the text in an application based on the universal truth. The old formal proposition main point was always a combination of principle and application. And we just again looked at these formal structures for principle consistent and application consistent outlines. Where we're going to go is this next major step. Item B, a fundamentally reduced outline. In a fundamentally reduced outline, the consistent clause that is, the anchor clause becomes the proposition. That's the simplest way to say it. You just chop the thing in half. And whatever was staying the same, that becomes the proposition. Whatever was changing, those become the main points. Let's look and see what it would look like. If you were in this application consistent outline, since Jesus alone provides salvation, we must present Christ at every opportunity, and you are seeing that... the application is staying the same. In a fundamentally reduced outline, you drop the sense and the because, and whatever was staying the same, we must present Christ at every opportunity, becomes the proposition. The anchor clause becomes the proposition alone. Then we'll ask a question of this. Remember we talked about interrogating the proposition? It was a very standard way that people move through their outlines. Strong statement. Ask a question and then answer the question with what were the developmental clauses or the magnet clauses. So what was changing, still in parallel wording, now become the main points. So simplest rule, you take the long formal wording of proposition main point and you just chop the thing in half. And whatever was staying the same, that becomes the proposition. And whatever was changing... Those become the main points. And that happens whether you're dealing with application consistent or if you're dealing with principle consistent. Same thing. In this particular case, the principle was staying the same because Jesus is the only hope of salvation. So, in the reduction, Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Notice again the because and the sense drop away. But the proposition is simply the anchor clause. You ask a question, and then you begin to answer with the application clauses that were changing. Let's look at it in real life and see what that means. What do you do? Item C is the step-by-step -step conversion process. And that's going to say in a more <laughs> elaborate way what I just said about chopping the thing in half. Okay, but here's what we do. In the step-by-step -step conversion process, we're going to note which element, principle or application, remains consistent in the outline. That is, we simply identify the anchor clause. Two, we develop the concept of the consistent element 
in the introduction and proposition. Now let's look at this one. In this fundamental reduction of the principle consistent outline, the principle is Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Okay? And if that's going to be the proposition, I've still got the same obligations. My introduction has to still prepare for the proposition in concept and terminology. So my introduction is still going to be preparing for this proposition. When my brother was in high school, he was, to all accounts, I think one of the finest Christians I had ever known. After high school, he went into the military, and he was stationed all across the world in various places. His particular uh, branch of the military involved him in negotiations, often with other international military leaders, uh, for American technology. And that put him in locations all across the world. And ultimately, it began to bother him a great deal that what he had been taught as a child, that Jesus was the only hope of salvation, would seem to exclude hundreds, thousands, millions of people from salvation. And ultimately, he felt he could no longer affirm that. The fact that Jesus is the only hope of salvation to him became the aspect of the gospel that he could no longer receive. Now, my brother's gone through lots of stages in life, but at that stage, he shared with a lot of people, maybe some of you, what is the most onerous part of Christianity. In a pluralistic culture that we say, Jesus is the only hope of salvation. If it's true, though, if Jesus is the only hope of salvation, what are the consequences? Now, did you hear what I did? I used Jesus is the only hope of salvation as the proposition, preparing for it with an illustration, which was my brother's experience. And then having said the proposition, I ask an analytical question. That is, I interrogate my own question. What are the consequences? And then the answers are what would have been the developing side of the formal main points. That is, the magnet clauses now appear. We must present Christ in difficult situations. If it's true that he's the only for salvation, we must present him to difficult people. We must present Christ despite our difficulties. Let's do it the other way. What if it's application consistent? Now, again, in this application consistent outline, the proposition was we must present Christ at every opportunity because that was the anchor clause, the thing that was staying the same. And what if I were to say some years ago, um, our washing machine broke down. And as a consequence, we needed to go and do our laundry at the local laundromat. I hadn't done that in a few years, but, you know, my wife watched our young kids and I went to do the laundry at the laundromat. And uh, while I was there at the, doing my laundry at the laundromat, just kind of sitting down, reading my newspaper, enjoying myself, uh, somebody took their wet clothes out of the washing machine and put them into one of those coin-operated dryers. Put their coins in, turn the button, and nothing happened. And that person began to beat on the dryer and curse at it and say, if there is a God in heaven, why does he let these kinds of things happen? And then he looked over at me and said, do you have an answer for that? 
of course, what I was thinking was, Lord, I just came here to do my laundry. <laughs> but here was an opportunity to present the gospel to someone. If there's a God in heaven, why does he let things like that happen? It was the opportunity to present Christ. And what the Bible is telling us is, we must present Christ at every opportunity. Why does the Bible say that? Well, first, because Jesus alone purchased salvation. Now, what are you going to get? Explanation, illustration, application. And then I may say this again. I may ask the question again. Why else must we present Christ at every opportunity? Because Jesus alone possesses salvation. Explanation, illustration, application. You know, there may be, what, seven or eight minutes of material going by there. And then I'll say, why else must we present Christ at every opportunity? Because Jesus alone bestows salvation. Now, notice the things that are happening. You've still got strong parallelism in your main points. So it's still the all flag to the ear, right? Another main point. Another main point. That's what's coming up because you've got the parallel language. You've got key word changes. So the parallel language allows you to say, here's the specific thing that this main point is going to be about. It's either going to be about Jesus purchased salvation, possessed salvation, or bestows salvation. So my subpoints are going to be about the specific wording of the magnet clause, just like it was before. But what we're doing is we're actually throwing that anchor clause into the transition question. Here I said it. What's another consequence of Jesus being the only hope of salvation. Why else must we present Christ at every opportunity? So instead of saying that big, boxy, long statement, we're actually using the transition to ask a question and get ready for the next main point. And it may be a much shorter form of that proposition, right? Let me say, why else should we present Jesus? Maybe I won't say it every opportunity. But I'm getting the proposition kind of back in view during the transition by the use of the question. Now, again, if you just kind of listen to pastors preach, you will find they do this over and over and over again. Strong statement, ask a question about it, and then answer the question with the main points. And when one main point is done, you ask a similar question again. And that gets the next main point in view. So the way that you keep tying back to the proposition is that question, right, that's linking together the main points. It's not different than, I mean, what we don't want to do is say, this is so different than what you've done before. It's actually not. It's what you've done before. It's just taking the formal elements and putting them in more conversational language. And that's the goal, to make it, make it more conversational or presentable. In the step-by-step -step conversion process, just to remind you here, we note which element, principle, or application remains consistent in the outline. That is, we identify the anchor clause. We develop the concept of the consistent element in the introduction and proposition. So whatever is that anchor clause about, we will use the introduction to develop that anchor clause concept. The number three is the one where it really starts to sing and flow. We create an analytical question or implicational questions based on the consistent element. That is, we interrogate the proposition. And we ask, who, what, when, where, why, how? What are the consequences? What else should I do? And we interrogate that. And then number four, 
we answer the questions with the developmental clauses, which become the main points. And you see the hint at the bottom. To enhance unity and flow, the anchor clause reappears in the transition between main points as the analytical question. That is, what's another reason that we should proclaim Christ in all of our situations? Or, what's another implication of knowing Christ is Lord over all of life? Now, I'm just going to stop for a minute and see if you've got questions. I mean, while I feel like there's a, a complicated way of doing this, the big picture, again, is you're still doing principle and application. And we're still going to ask you to do that when you turn in an outline as part of your preparations. But what we're actually asking you to preach is not that long statement. But take those long statements, chop them in half, and whatever was staying the same becomes the proposition. And whatever was changing becomes the main points. And the way you set up those main points is with an analytical question. You got questions? Yes, Gary. That are not answered by that outline. Yeah. No, it's not okay. If, I mean, you're looking at the outline as it would be developed, but surely you would have to ask other questions, answer other questions as part of that process. In other words, I, I didn't give you all the subpoints, and surely the subpoints would have to be answering questions like, why is he the only hope, and what are the consequences of him being the only? I mean, there would have to be other questions in there, which are being answered by he bestows and he's possessed. You know, they are in there. But all you're seeing is the main points. But no question, you've got to answer further questions to be consistent with what that story was setting up. But all I'm asking you to do at this point, I haven't gotten to it yet, is do the main points in the structure that I showed just so that we know what you're doing. But, yeah, that would not be a complete sermon in my mind either. More questions would need to come. Questions on structure. Do you feel like it would be more comfortable? I mean, you know, when you did those big, long things before, it seemed kind of unnatural, didn't it? So even though it kind of forced you hermeneutically to say what the text said and can I prove you have to apply something out of it, now it's kind of moving you, I think, to more conversational kinds of presentation. But you'll still be doing the same thing in terms of thinking through the process. You ready to move? Okay, next things. Page two. Some results of using the reduced forms. Number one, a principle consistent outline in reduced form will have a principle for the application, because that was the anchor clause, and applications for the main points. The proposition will say what is true, and the main points will say what to do. Now, again, that may be more complicated than needs to be said, but here's the idea. If your proposition is a principle, what automatic will all your main points be? Applications. If your proposition is an application, what will automatically all of your main points be? They will be principle. Okay, so there'll be more and more principles. In essence, the application will stay the same, and you're saying, why should we do that? What's another reason we should do that? What's another reason we should do that? If it were an application consistent outline. So here's the hint. Whatever the proposition is, principle or application, the main points are the opposite. Okay. Whatever the proposition is, the main points are the opposite. So, for instance, at this stage, and we'll do other things later, but at this stage, if my 
proposition is Jesus is the only hope of salvation. My main points cannot be Jesus alone bestows salvation. Jesus alone possesses salvation. Jesus alone purchased salvation. Because the first thing, Jesus is the only hope of salvation, was a principle. And all those other things, Jesus purchased, Jesus possesses, Jesus, all that bestows, they're more principles. They go with another outline somewhere. So we don't have principle and principles. Whatever the proposition is, the main points are the opposite. Now, will we always preach that way? No. But we are at a certain place in the curriculum where we're saying what is true and what to do about it. So we're just thinking in those terms in the way that we form things now. And number two on page two under D says the opposite, right? An application consistent outline will have an application for the proposition and principles for the main points. The proposition will say what to do and the main points will say what is true. That is the reasons why to do it. The goals for using these short forms, you recognize the goals. The main points, hopefully, will be more concise and memorable. That's why we're trying to shrink these things down. We said early on, what's the sign of a good proposition or main point? We said it passes a 3 a.m. test, and it's brief. And then, <laughs> in contradistinction, we form these big, long main points and propositions. Well, now we're trying to shrink them down and be consistent with our own principles if we can. So, main points should be concise and memorable. Number two... Subpoints will still support or prove their specific main point. So subpoints will still be about what was the magnet clause, right? Subpoints are still going to be about their specific main point. And number three, and this is the one you almost want to put in neon lights, we still now want to rein key term changes from the subpoints to tell the illustration and form the application. Now, my, my sense is that you will just naturally, after this lecture, think, oh, we can finally word main points more naturally. And you're going to be fine with that. The thing that's often hard at this stage is to say, but you know those principles about subpoint statements have the key words that go into the illustrations and applications? That's usually the harder thing to do. And it hasn't changed from last semester. You know how 90% of getting an A in any course is learning what the professor expects? <laughs> it's not what you know. It's learning what the professor expects. I will tell you, all the adjuncts, every single one of them, uh, has gotten headlight, upfront message, check to make sure they're doing expositional rank. Okay, so whatever instructor you have is going to check and say, is the keyword change in the subpoint, is that going into the illustration? And the keywords of your subpoints are they appearing in the application? So you just you know you just know that everybody's going to be checking to see did you do that? Questions now? Expositional rain or fundamental reductions? I'm about to say what do you actually turn in when you turn in the, the, your sermon, etc. But just questions on how to do it, Adam. I am saying that you do not have to do the if-then anymore, or the because-therefore. It's implied. That's right. Simply by your saying, Jesus is the only hope of salvation, what are the consequences? You've already said because. It's implied. But you're actually dropping off the sense and you're dropping off the because, just again to shorten down the language. So you're making a strong statement 
the question that you ask about it will automatically imply either your conditional or consequential concept. But it's a good question. And I mean, it really, it's just so much more conversational this way, which is the way we're going. This just helps us be more conversational. Now, any other questions about either expositional reign or structure? Those of you who already had me for your section, this is going to be redundant now because I'm going to talk about what are we actually looking for you're turning in to professors this semester. So if you say, what are the sermon requirements this, for this semester? A, prior to presentation of each sermon you preach, give the instructor a typed manuscript of the entire message. So that's number one. You come in, you're going to have your typed manuscript of the entire message. And uh, we'll look at an outline on that in just a minute. Uh, you can see sermon manuscript and outline requirements handout and the example sermon in Prep and Dell. Now, here's, here's the essence. I'm going to show you in just a minute a lot, of, a lot of detail on what your sermon should look like when you turn it in. But most of this is simply saying, make it look like the example sermon in the back of the syllabus. The one change will be the example sermon in the back of the syllabus has formal wording. And you're going to be going to reduced wording. But everything else stays the same. So you're basically saying, as we're starting out preaching here, and you've got adjunct professors, instructors who are kind of checking off, did you do that? Did you do that? Did you understand that? Do you understand how that works? It just helps them to see, here's how you're structuring it along consistent lines. So that example sermon in the back of your Prep and Dell syllabus is still your guideline, except for going to reduced forms. So that's the first thing. You'll turn in a full manuscript. B. Prior to presentation of each sermon, you should give your instructor two outlines of your message. And Adam, this is what I thought you were about to ask, so you, you changed a little bit. But the first thing you're going to turn in is a bare-bones outline that only includes the formal proposition and main points. Fully write out both the anchor and magnet clauses as examples in Prep and Dell. So, on the overhead, what we're looking for is what's shown right there. That you turn in an outline that's, that's just bare bones. It just shows the proposition and main points. Forget the subpoints, forget the illustrations, forget the applications. Just turn in a formally worded proposition and main points. So you know you come in, you're going to give the professor a manuscript, and you're going to give them an outline that's bare bones, just proposition and main points, but it's formally worded. Okay, so it's got the long structure in it. The second thing, which Adam already said the good wording, is you're going to turn in another outline, which is the pulpit outline. That's number two here. A pulpit outline prepared for the actual preaching of the sermon, showing the proposition and main points in fundamentally reduced structure. That is, proposition equals the anchor clause only, and the main points are the magnet clauses only. Pulpit outlines should also show whatever you need to prompt your memory in order to preach. That is, you might have introduction cues, subpoint statements, illustration reminders, application specifics, etc. Here's the goal. You're going to write out a full manuscript. That's a great discipline to go through. But if you preach from a manuscript, what are you going to end up doing? You'll end up reading it. So the goal is you write out a full manuscript. Before you've written out a full manuscript, you have prepared, hopefully, a formal outline. These proposition and main points. Write out the full manuscript. But now, 
in what you preach from, hopefully, will be a pulpit outline. And remember, that's just whatever it takes for you, (laughs) whatever it takes for you to preach the message with prompting. For most of you, it's probably going to be, what, two to three pages of outline material that is kind of prompting you with what you want to say. The, The manuscript helps you get very prepared. The outline, hopefully, helps you preach freely, the pulpit outline. So the pulpit outline... Um, the instructor is not going to have any requirements on what that looks like. Okay? It, it could be handwritten. It could be computer printed. The damage you'll do to yourself is if you start you know, putting things in seven-point font you know, to cram it all in so that it really isn't an outline at all. It's just kind of a manuscript you know, that you've shrunk down into two or three pages. But the idea is it's prompting for you because most preachers preach from outlines. You do see here, it does say if you feel like you have to have a manuscript this semester, you're not forbidden to take a manuscript into the pulpit. Okay, you're not forbidden to take a manuscript into the pulpit. Next semester you are. Okay, so the idea is to, to get ready uh, and preach as much as you can from outlines this semester. And uh, some guys will do the old broadcast style, right? They'll put the manuscript down on two-thirds of the page and they'll put their outline in one-third of the page. So they use the outline as much as they can, but they've got the manuscript if they need it. Others will do the old one-page fold. Right. So they'll put, you know, introduction, first main point, second main point, third main point and conclusion. And that's a very standard ways that preachers preach the one page fold. Very standard way people put their outlines together. Yes. That's a great question. As you in writing out the manuscript, is it supposed to be verbatim? I would write it as you plan to speak it. Does that make sense? And conversational language is a little bit different. You are not being graded on what's in the manuscript. You're being graded on what you say. All right. Now, the reason we say that is this. If you try to memorize the manuscript, it's just going to deaden you. Right. It's just going to freeze you up and constrain you. So the idea of writing out the manuscript is so that you carefully think out what you intend to say. But nobody is saying he didn't say that word. He didn't say that word. He didn't say that's not happening. You're, you're, being, you're being graded for what you present, not for what you have written on paper. Now, if you say, well, then the manuscript doesn't matter. Well, that'll hurt you. I mean, obviously, we're asking you to turn in the manuscript because we want to see what you're doing and that you've planned well. But, but please don't memorize the words on the manuscript. I mean, some of you may be able to do that. You may be one of those exceptional people with that photographic memory, and it just kind of you know, reappears in your brain, whatever you've written out. But most of us aren't that way. And trying to memorize it just really, you know, freezes us, most of us anyway. Did I answer what you were asking? You're really, the manuscript is to prepare you, but what you present is what you're being graded on. And, and you know, everybody's going to mess up words, right? Everybody's not going to say exactly what they had intended, and that's fine. Jared? Right. And I'm just going to repeat your question for the camera. How much freedom should you allow yourself for the Holy Spirit to work in the event itself so that you're Changing as you speak, should you allow that to occur? And the answer is yes, definitely. Um, that, that notion of Robert Murray McShane that we looked at last semester, that he wanted to write out a manuscript to prepare carefully what he intended to say, but then put the manuscript aside and speak freely as empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's that gentle mix in that you can be underprepared and therefore not confident of what you intend to say. You can be overprepared and now just practically stiff in what you're saying. So it's that 
but it's that dynamic middle ground of being very prepared, very sure of yourself, so that when you see somebody, they're not getting it. You can repeat it. Or you feel from your own sense of, this is so important, I need to settle in here a little bit and, and focus on this a bit more, that you're doing that even while you're preaching. And, um, you know, I, I have the wonderful advantage of being able to preach sermons in a lot of different places, but they are never the same because you're always reading people, feeling the dynamics of the moment, the church situations are different, and I just think you want to be there. You ask another question, Jared, about kind of who are you talking to, and I was going to mention it later, but let me just throw it in because it follows on your question. Guys, let's all admit, straight up, it's a little bit artificial, right? You're preaching from a manuscript that you've prepared into outline form. You're talking to a group of, what, 10 or 11 guys in a room, and they're all seminary students. And, you know, that, that seems a little bit artificial, the ways that you can make it more artificial are begin talking to all the young women in the audience and the grandmothers and, and people go, who is he talking to? You know, I mean, it's kind of like I would encourage you to come prepared to minister. Granted, you're going to be evaluated. Granted, you say something, people are going to be writing notes on a piece of paper while you do it. But if you if you really come to say, listen, this is the word of God. And I'm proclaiming it. I know I'm learning. I know I'm evaluating. But even if I were in a church situation apprenticing with a senior pastor, he'd be talking to me afterwards about what I said. So I still want to come and minister to people and use the apprenticeship of their comments even as I'm ministering to them. So I would come prepared really to preach. Now, remind yourself that not everybody you're, ta- I mean, everybody you're talking to is a seminary student, but they're more than that, Right? Most of us have jobs in other places at the same time. Many of us have family situations we're going through. Many of us have health issues that we're facing. Lots of us have financial pressures. Lots of us face lust and ambition and anger. And, you know, every, everything that goes on in people's hearts, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common. So I, I would take care not to make every application about, you know, we're, we're mad at this particular professor because he graded the Hebrew exam too hard. <laughs> you, know, you know, I would remember... It's a broader scope, right? Our lives are broader than that. And certainly apply to guys preparing for ministry. But remember, they're more than that, too. And, and uh, what your passage is about, try to gear the applications toward what your passage is about. And uh, that will help. Jared, did I answer both sides of your question? So I, I don't think I'd come in prepared to talk to a high school youth group if they're not the ones you're talking to. I think I'd come in prepared to minister to these guys. Aaron? Yes, in, in almost all the rooms where you'll be preaching, there's a mic that is, that is set up to transmit to a video camera. Now, the professor is not typically moving the camera with you. So if you plan to move around, and some of you will and some of you won't, if you tell him to back up the, the you know, what, what am I, to widescreen it somewhat, right, so that you're not moving out of camera range. So if you plan to move, um, most of my sections are in here. And if you move, the ca- can you see the camera back through the glass back there? So I'm fairly familiar with that camera. And, I, you know, if you move kind of beyond this chair right here, you've moved out of shot. So I encourage guys, if they're going to move, to kind of stay within kind of shoulder's length of the pulpit here. And, and the camera works fine. But if they move way far, this camera won't work and most of them won't. But you're not, obliga- you're not obligated to stand right here. Okay? You, you can move some. And... 
It's a different age, isn't it? I mean, I'm guessing a lot of us feel more comfortable moving than we would have a generation or two ago. Curiously, in a lot of churches, the pulpits won't let you move, right? Just the way they're constructed, you, you, you can't move. They're constraining. But if, if you feel comfortable moving, I actually am pretty comfortable with that. I, I like being able to move around, personally. Yes, Rob? If you want to preach to the unchurched, I think you're fine with that. Um, the Let me think now. Two semesters from now, you'll get specific instruction on preaching to the unchurched. But if you want to do that now, that's fine. I mean, I still think you're going to be held accountable for, is that what this text says, and does that application come out of this text? But using um, plainer language, not taking jargon for granted, defining your terms, uh, is perfectly fine to do. It doesn't hurt, by the way, to declare uh, kind of as you're preaching, guys, um, I'm going to be talking to you today, but I'm going to be talking to you as people who don't understand the jargon. I actually find it a little problematic because all of us have had Hebrew and Greek. If even in seminary sermons we start referring to the Hithpael and the Eris and kind of assume that because we're in seminary settings that I would still say the Eris, meaning completed action. I mean, I'd still define those terms and then I'll just assume... You know, I'm, I'm preparing for general preaching by using a highly esoteric language. So I, I think I would preach to, how do I say this, normal people. <laughs> and not just kind of very uh, esoteric language understanding seminarians. Yes, Ronnie? When you, that's a great question. What's the normal order that you'll follow these days? For most of you, what you'll do is you will um, announce the text. You will do a scripture introduction. You will read the scripture, have prayer for illumination, and then begin the sermon. So in that scripture introduction is when you're doing the C&C, contextualization, creation of longing. All of you have now turned in one sermon. What was the easier thing to do of contextualization, creation of longing? What did everybody do? Contextualization. What did a lot of people forget to do? Creation of longing. Again, academic settings tend to create academic ideas. So everybody was great at saying, here's the context of this passage. Sometimes people forgot to say, and here's why it's important to you. Here's why I want you to read it with me. And that's, that's the harder thing to do. Eric, are you going to ask a question? Are you, okay. Those are great questions. And again, I think the more we can come prepared to minister to one another, the better. I mean, it, it is a little bit that sense of, Often homiletics courses are people's favorite courses, not because you hear the most amazing sermons, but because you start helping one another and you get that sense of mutual accountability. How can I encourage you? How can I help you? And you do with me, too. And you just um, first semester sermons are a little stilted. I will tell you the second semester. I, I hear from our own students some of the best sermons I hear anywhere by the second semester. We, I mean, just being challenged and helped by guys that you're accountable to in a, you know, just 10 or 11 guys, we, we just grow so rapidly. And uh, it's, just, it's just really neat. And curiously, we hold ourselves more accountable for what the text says than often the church does outside seminary settings. And, and that's often why these are some of the best sermons I hear, because the guys are really looking closely at the text and trying to minister to one another, knowing their friends are going to tell them if it worked or not. 
you know, it just, it just really makes you grow fast. And, we, I mean, we really do a good job of uh, helping one another that way. Let me make sure I just cover what's here. Um, on page, what is it, five in my notes, do you have a couple of pages of examples and then page five? And page five is just a general description of what the sermon manuscript should involve, okay? So here's, here's a quick reminder. All sermon manuscripts must be typed. See the example sermon in the Prep and Del syllabus for basic format. And should indicate by heading, boldface, or underline the major sermon components they contain. And Ryan, this is part of your question again. So you're going to indicate in the manuscript, scripture introduction. Now, you don't have to say C and C, but you should say, here's the scripture introduction. The sermon introduction with keywords preparing for proposition boldfaced. Virtually all the professors will do this. They are sitting in here at the back of the classroom, or I'm sitting back there behind that glass, and I've got your manuscript on the desk, and I've got your pulpit outline. Usually both are face up. So when you start preaching, I don't want to be reading your manuscript, right? But I do want to know, did you get the keywords in your introduction preparing for your proposition? So I just want to be able to glance down and kind of see bold-faced in your introduction the key words that are in the proposition. I, I really want to be watching you, not reading your introduction. Okay? So I'm able to grade while you're talking by just saying, oh, he's got the key words that are in his proposition being used in the introduction. So it really is just a fast way for the instructor to follow what you're doing as you're doing it. The same is true on the FCF. Is the FCF underlined in the introduction? Now, Back to the other question. You may not say the, that, those words in exactly the same way, but have you identified what the burden of the sermon is, and have you spotted it in the introduction itself? The proposition, is it fundamentally reduced? Main points, fundamentally reduced. Subpoint statements, illustrations, notice again the highlight, with key words from preceding subpoint statements, boldfaced. So in the illustration, have you boldfaced the words that are coming out of the subpoint statements? And again, that's just a quick grading method, right? So when you're going through the illustration, I'm not reading, I'm watching you. But I do glance down to say, are you using the words out of your subpoints? Okay? And by the way, it's not the subpoint paragraph, it's the subpoint statement, right? The keywords out of that subpoint statement are they appearing in your illustration and in your application. So it's just kind of a, a quick method of saying, did you do that? And then conclusion. So, in essence, make it look like what's at the back of your syllabus. What's the exception? Except they're in fundamentally reduced forms, not the longer forms anymore. But the structure is basically the same. Ken? Yes, all, all the old things. So, one illustration per main explanation, illustration, application. And can you remind me? I mean, just, just hints of things that may help. Do you have to illustrate every subpoint? Say no. <laughs> you do not have to illustrate every subpoint. Do you have to apply every subpoint? Yes. Okay. So just a quick reminder. Okay. Subpoints don't have to all be illustrated. Maybe just one of them, or maybe you group them all together. Fine. But you can't just talk about a subpoint for three or four minutes and then never do anything with it. You know. So you don't have to illustrate all the subpoints, but you do have to apply all the subpoints. So make sure you do that. Rob? Can we do a variety of Certainly. Do you hear the question? Can you do a variety of intros and conclusions? Conclusions, we've only said basically two styles, human interest account and grand style. 
some of you can do grand style. I will say it may be pushing kind of what you understand about preaching thus far to do grand style. But introductions, we've talked about a lot of kind, you know, it could be examples, could be startling statements, could be provocative questions. So you've got different ways of doing introductions now. But most often, they'll still be human interest accounts. After those elements, we're preparing manuscripts with great care in order to be well prepared, but we should not read in the pulpit. Our goal is to convert the manuscript to a pulpit outline and then preach from this outline to provide the most natural, powerful, and to Jared's earlier question, spirit-led delivery. Do you remember my key hint for pulpit outlines? It is to start new main points on a new top of page. That's my key hint. So that when you're, when you're preaching and you're kind of through with the main point, you're not starting somewhere on the page. And your eye kind of, where, where am I? But you know every time you start a new point, it's going to be at the top of the next page. And you can say, well, I waste lots of paper that way. Fine, waste lots of paper. <laughs> no. If your eye always knows where the next main point starts, it's a good way to keep from getting lost. Okay, so that's just a, a key hint. And if you, you know, if you color code things or circle things, all that's acceptable. Whatever gives you the most freedom is what we're going for in that pulpit outline. Neatness is not the goal. <laughs> freedom is the goal. So whatever you're using, you're going to give the professor a copy of that so that you can kind of follow what you're doing as you're going through. The pulpit outline is not simply a listing of propositions, main points, and subpoints, but rather an organized presentation of all your material that allows you to see at a glance, usually in one to three pages, what you intend to say in the entire passage. A good rule of thumb is to keep main points segregated on different pages of the pulpit outline so that your eye always knows where the next main point starts. If you want further hints on preparing these extended pulpit outlines, look at Christ Center Preaching, pages 334 to 336. So, quick reminder, before you preach, the day that you preach, here's what you're going to give the professor. A complete manuscript. One thing you're going to give. Second thing, you're going to give a pulpit outline that includes fundamentally reduced proposition main points along with introductions, illustrations, whatever it takes for you to preach from. You're going to give him your pulpit outline. Three, you're going to give him the bare bones outline. That is, you're going to show that you've done the fundamental reduction by turning in a proposition and main points that are formally worded, the old long things. Okay, so you're still going to turn in that bare bones of that. And four, you're going to hand the professor a VHS format video. So uh, this is where you are taped, and in all of your classes, what will happen is, after you preach, within two further classes, you're going to turn in a one-page analysis of your delivery per main point. So you're going to say, first main point, I said, uh, 35 times. <laughs> but I did look up, and I did smile. I was speaking with adequate volume. Second main point, the uhs went away. But uh, the volume dropped. Third main point, I put it all together. Eye contact was good. You know, voice was strong. No uhs. I was confident. More, more I spoke, the more confident I got. So you're doing a one-page analysis of your delivery. Now, this, if you're like me, this is like being in a torture chamber. You know, having to sit and watch yourself preach. But, again, it's just, it's actually kind of liberating over time to kind of say, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. And then kind of spotting it on your own tape, once you see it, usually it doesn't reoccur. Okay? 
So the idea is within, not six weeks, but within two class periods of when you preach, you turn in a one-page analysis of your own uh, sermon presentation. It's on VHS because that's what our cameras are. And because you're going to go, you'll learn when you go to your sections, you're going to go to Dr. Eswine's office, and he's also going to analyze your delivery off the VHS tape. So you'll actually watch with him and get some analysis of your delivery with three other students. Excuse me, with two other students. The three of you will work on that together. You'll, you'll hear about that when you get in your sections. One, one page total. One page total of your entire sermon. But go point by point in the analysis that you do. As you do that, one, one full page is all we're looking for. And, I mean, basically, it's just a way of evaluating yourself. So if you took all the pieces and say, what kind of feedback am I getting? I just preached. All right. You're going to hear from the professor right after you preach because you're going to preach about 25 to 30 minutes. And that leaves 20 minutes for sermon evaluation. So you're going to hear from the professor. You're going to hear from your peers because they're going to be led in a discussion of could you hear? Was it orthodox? Is it what the text said? Is that application really in that text? Okay. So your peers are going to be responding to that. Uh, if you do say there are two members of the Trinity, someone should say that that's a problem. Yes. Um, so you'll get feedback from the professor, feedback from the students. Then you're going to get written feedback from the professor. Then you're going to view yourself and you're going to view feedback from you. And then you're going to be in a smaller section with only two other guys looking at some of the video of your work. And you're going to get feedback from Dr. Eswine and those students on delivery alone. Do you think preaching is important at Covenant Seminary? And you're getting line after line after line of feedback so that hopefully, as I said, by the second semester beyond this, I actually hear some of the best sermons I ever hear from students here at the seminary. It's, it's just great to hear how the Lord uses you all. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. Resourcesforlifeonline.com.